Well, good morning, guys. If we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. I'm one of uh, the pastors here who needs to turn his microphone on. It's great to see you guys here. Um, as, as we do pretty much every week here at uh, MCC, what we love to do is give away a great book that is going to help you kind of understand uh, what, maybe the topic we're talking about, but generally it's going to help you as a Christian. And this is the book that we're giving away. It's called Love Thy Body by Nancy R. Piercy, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. Um, Nancy Piercy uh, is at Houston Christian University or Houston Baptist University. She's a professor there and she, she takes you through how we got to the place that we are sexually. Why, why are we in a place where transgenderism and homosexuality and all these other things are really frontline issues? And why is there so much heat in, involved in them. It's a fantastic book, especially if you've got children. To understand the world that they're in better, um, get this book. We've got a couple of copies of that. So if you get the, if someone's already taken that, and I suspect it, it will be taken very quickly because it's a fantastic book. Um, we've got another copy. Just come and grab me and uh, I'll get that to you. Um, you will need, you may need today an outline. There's outlines up the back and also the table at the fr- uh, uh, out the front because uh, we're talking about some pretty heavy things today and you might want to take notes. If you don't want to take notes, that's okay. Um, but how about I pray as we look at God's word uh, and we think about it today together. Father God, I pray that you would help us understand not only your word better, but your world better. Not only the word that, that speaks to us, but the world we're trying to speak into. Lord, we live in a world which seems to be so divided and so fractured, but especially around this topic of sexuality. Lord, help us to understand your word better, but also understand the world better. So we can live in this world with a joyful holiness, but also that we can speak into the world, into the lives of our friends in a compelling way. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember as a teenager, I was at school and um, I, I grew up in northwest New South Wales in a place called Moree and we had a gay teacher. He hadn't come out to anyone, but everyone pretty much knew. And I can remember one time, for some reason, it was a public school, and so these things happened from time to time, that we were in class and there wasn't a teacher, right? And so we were just talking and talking and that kind of thing. And uh, then a a bunch of people just started talking about this teacher. He was a great teacher, But he was gay and people started saying all the things that should happen to him. Whether, you know, he should lose his job, what does he do with his spare time, you know, uh, it was vile. It was wrong. Around that time, I was thinking through uh, the, the whole thing of human sexuality. The reason I was thinking through it is because my my sister was a huge Madonna fan. And at that time, she wasn't a Christian. And Madonna had a, um, a documentary out that followed her around on tour called In Bed with Madonna. And, and she had a number of gay dancers. And they, they were portrayed as lovely, awesome people, which I'm sure they were, right? 
And for my sister to listen to me about Jesus, I need to think through how I was going to talk about, uh, about these people that she was seeing on this documentary because my sister was very progressive for her age and especially for Maury at the time. She thought there was nothing wrong with being gay. And so I was thinking about it. And yet I was thrust into this conversation, this vile conversation that was happening in my schoolroom. And one, one, one of the guys who was the, the kind of main leader of, of this conversation, he said, oh, hands, what do you think? And I was trying to just say nothing. In the corner, I was just kind of, I don't know what I was doing, but I didn't want to be in that room. I didn't want to answer this question. But I can remember uh, basically saying something that my pastor and I had worked out to say to my sister. And I said, well, in the Bible, human sexuality is meant to be between a man and a woman in marriage. But all people are created in God's image. And therefore, we should love all people and respect all all people. And I said, and I think you should stop saying what, you should, what, what you're saying. And then this guy said, oh, so you're gay too. And everyone laughed. Fast forward 20 years from that. Uh, I, I'm, in, I'm on holidays, or about 20 years, I, I'm on holidays in Moree. I go to the, the golf club in Moree where everyone's hanging out. Let me tell you, it's not the most upper-class establishment, but we were there drinking. And basically, it was the same people in that room. The guy who jokingly said I was gay, he was in that room. And the conversation was around gay marriage once again. They all knew that I had been on, on uh, ABC, a, a show on Triple J, talking about human sexuality and marriage. And so they were, they were talking about, uh, you know, they, said, they were saying, hey, there's not, nothing wrong for it, we should be all for it, which is very different from what they were saying. And then once again, I was trying to get through this conversation without saying anything, right? And then the same guy actually said, Hans, what do you think? And I said, all people are created in the image of God and worthy of dignity, honour and respect. But human sexuality is meant to be for a man and a woman in a committed marriage. And the same guy that said I was gay said, you're a bigot. And this time he wasn't joking. And in fact, I could feel the mood change. Now, isn't it interesting that in the course of 15 or 20 years you can say the same exact thing. And in the 90s, you can get jokingly called gay. And just a few years ago, and especially now, you get labelled a bigot. I wonder if you felt that change. I wonder if you have experienced that change, maybe. Maybe when the question of sexuality comes up in your workplace, you get out of the break room. Because you are not only scared to lose friends, you are scared to lose your job. What changed? 
So, so the really important thing for us is we not only have to understand what the Bible says about human sexuality, to actually speak to our society and to speak to our friends, we actually need to understand what is happening beneath the arguments. How did we get here? And so today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to, in the first point of this talk, we're going to look at how we got here. What, what are the kind of three main, what I think the three main underpinning ideas are, and don't, don't get me wrong, there's far more ideas than that, and then we're going to look at the Bible and what the Bible says about this. Now, here's the thing. I dare say there's some people in this room who are going, Hans, why are we looking at the Bible? It's just an outdated text. It's a text from you know, thousands of years ago when the world was flat and blah, 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 right? But when I get into conversations with people about human sexuality, people say, or usually say something like this. What do you care about what two people do as long as they don't harm anyone else? Which I think is the right question. Honestly, it's, it's the right question. Well, why should anyone care what two people do as, they don't, as long as they don't harm anyone? But do you know the problem with that? You've got to ask the question, what is harm? And when I ask that question, uh, uh, it's interesting to see people just, just kind of go, oh, I've never thought about what harm is. And then I say, well, what philosophers say is harm is, this is what generally they say, harm is when, uh, when something happens to you or you do something to yourself that stops you from being completely human. Now, do you agree with that? And most people I've had this conversation with say, yeah, I, I agree with that. And they would say, well, well, because my sexuality, if you say I can't do that, that stops me from being completely human. But then I ask, can I ask a follow-up question to that? What does it mean to be human? And who gets to decide what humanity is and if there's a purpose for humanity? Because if you don't have a purpose for humanity, you can't define what is completely human or not. And if you can't define what completely human is or not, you you can't define what harm is. And so the the whole premise of the argument is gone. So what is humanity? Humanity. And therefore, you've got to ask, well, why are we here? What does it mean to be here and what are we here for? And therefore, you're asking questions, metaphysical questions. That's what the philosophers call it. You're asking questions about God and purpose and everything. So you you can't actually have a conversation about human sexuality without actually talking about God. They're inextricably linked. And so that's what we're going to do in the, the final uh, two-thirds of our talk today. We're going to see our world and, and what our world looks like and why, we, why people believe what they do. And then we're going to look at what the Bible says. There's going to be three points there on your outline. We're going to see a world, a, sorry, a sex-saturated world without purpose, God's purpose for sexuality, and God's purpose for our bodies. A sex-saturated world without purpose, God's purpose for sexuality, and God's purpose for our bodies. So let's look at the first point, a sex-saturated world without purpose. That's our first point. And how do we get to be in a world where people are defined by their sexuality? 
How do we get there? Well, I think there's actually three logical steps to it. Okay? The first is, and the first slide is coming up here, it, it's about Darwin. Now, here's what I'm not saying. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not arguing about the science behind Darwin on evolution or not. What I'm talking about here is the repercussions of the idea of evolution. Well, when Charles Darwin dropped the, the origin of species, it was like an atomic bomb. Because what happened, for, for, for a number of reasons, but especially when you're thinking about humanity, what happened is Charles Darwin argued that the world has no purpose, that we just kind of blindly go about what, what our urges tell us to do. And so there's actually no, in the end, no purpose. And that was totally in contradistinction to what people believed at that point generally and what religions taught, that, that, that the world was created with a purpose. Here's what um, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Edward Hume says. Darwin's brilliance was in seeing beyond the appearance of design and understanding the purposeless, merciless process of natural selection of life and death in the wild and how it culled all but the most successful organisms from the tree of life, thereby creating the, the illusion that a master intellect had designed the world. But close inspection of the watch-like perfection of honeybees' combs or ant trails reveals that they are a product of random, repetitive, unconscious behaviours, not conscious design. Now, did you see... Uh, I wonder if you can see... Uh, I've highlighted a couple of words here. First of all, it's not designed. Nothing's designed here. He says that twice. But do you see that word, purposeless? According to the philosophical um, underpinnings of Darwinism, this whole world, your life, has no purpose whatsoever. And here's why that's important. If your life has no purpose, that means part of your job of living on this life is to come up with a purpose to live for. If your body has no purpose, therefore you can ascribe purpose to whatever you, what, your body, to whatever purpose you want it to be. So when purpose is taken away from our bodies and our sexuality, we can define it however we want. Okay, the se the, there's a second guy. And uh, Rene Descartes, I forgot that for a second, right? I should remember that joke, you put the Descartes before the horse, but anyway, that's a whole different story. Descartes was very, very famous because in the 1700s, he became um, kind of like, he, he took Greek dualism, the idea that the mind and the body are two things and they're not really linked. So we've got a mind or a person, but our body is distinct from that, Right? Mind and matter are separate. Body is separate from emotions, thinking, and soul. And so the whole idea is, is here is that I can be a person, but what I do with my body doesn't affect my emotions, thinking, or soul. And to flip it, you can say, well, I'm a person. I can feel one way, and I can do whatever I want to my body to get it in line with my feelings. Can you see how this underpins transgenderism? 
that I can be a person who feels like I'm actually a female, even though I'm maybe biologically male. And therefore, I can change my body to reflect my mind. Now, here's what what that does with, with human sexuality. It divorces what I do with my body from my feelings. And so whatever I can, I, I can just use my body in every, any way and my feelings, and my soul and everything is just a separate entity. And, and so I can sleep with as many people as I want and it's not going to affect me emotionally. It's just not going to do it. it, it, it it's going to be fine. That's what is happening now. In fact, I read someone that, that, that said it was in Rolling Stone magazine and it was a drummer. I never believe what drummers say about the world anyway, but no, I'm joking. I love drummers. Uh, but, but they were saying, really, sex is just two parts of a body just rubbing together. That's all it is. Why? Because he's just talking about the body. He's, not, he's saying, well, our mind is different. It does, and he basically went on to say, it doesn't affect you emotionally. Another, another person said, sex is about on the same level as eating food or driving a car. It doesn't affect you emotionally. It's just something you do with your body. The third thing, and it's coming up, and I will call this the religionization of sex. That sex and sexuality has become a religion. And there's a number of thinkers around this, but, but probably the most influential is a guy named Michel Foucault. Foucault wrote three volumes on the history of sex. And I've read it. Don't bother reading it. You know, it's, it's very confusing on, on some bits. But he actually says in it that sex is the reason why we live now. That we've got to do away with God and what he says. And at the center of our universe is sex and our sexuality. And anyone, anyone who actually says to you, you can't act sexually in that way, is is trying to harm you. And so here's a quote. He says this, the Faustinian pact. Now, uh, this is just, um, this is a pact where you give up everything that you have, your soul, your your intellect, your mind, for something on this earth. That's what he's talking about in in this pact. Is now as follows to exchange life in its entirety for sex itself, for the truth and sovereignty of sex, sex is worth dying for. Now you're probably going, I've never read Michel Foucault. In fact, my kids have never read Michel Foucault. But actually, we're getting told in our world that sex is so important that you must be having sex, or you're not completely human. Where does that come from? It comes from these guys who are saying that this kind of thing. And yet, what we're finding over and over and over again what, is that we can try to divorce our bodies from our emotions, especially sexually. It just doesn't work. We can put on at the center of our lives our sexuality, and we, we're ending up broken what, what, what's, what's interesting in our world is that pornography is going up and up and up at alarming rates. But what is happening also is that a lot of guys aren't having sex. And what that means is you've got a lot of guys who are really, really frustrated. 
frustrated because they're watching porn and then they try to interact with women in a very aggressive way because they are being, being told this is through pornography, this is how you should, you should act. And therefore, a bunch of sex crimes are on, just going through the roof. There's suicide going through the roof, all this kind of stuff, because of these ideas. A couple of years ago, I was at uni, and it was really interesting. There was another conversation around, around sex, and uh, because we just had a lecture about sex in the ancient world. And um, so people were talking about sex, and people were saying, oh, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. You can do whatever you want with, with your body. And I can remember one girl who said this. Uh, um, I'll just find it for you. She said this with tears in her eyes. I thought I could hook up with as many people as I could to dull the pain that I was going through and to find myself, but it introduced more pain. Here's here's a woman who believed what our world says about sexuality and it introduced more pain. This is our world. We are so sex-saturated, we worship the idol at sex. But we're so relationally starved. This is very important for us to get if we want to reach our world. But this is very important for us to get if, we, if we've got children. Because believe it or not, your children, this is what's happening in the media. Of course they won't... Or, um, you know, quote Descartes and Darwin and, 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 you know, Foucault and all this kind of stuff. But it's all in there. It is all in there. And so, what does, actually God, what does God actually say about our, our sexuality? Let's, let's move, move on to our next point. Let's have a look at God's purpose for sexuality. Flip, flip over Genesis 2 for me. And don't worry, we'll, we'll go through these two texts pretty quickly. Here is God, and the first thing that you've got to see is God sees that it's not good for the man to be alone in verse 18. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. That is, that you and I were, uh, were purposed to be in relationships. Uh, we, we are relational beings. and what, So what does God do? God forms Eve. In verses 21 and verses 22, he makes a woman out of man. And then let's have a look at how Adam responds. Verse 22, Then the Lord uh, God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, "This This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, now can, you, can you hear the, um, can you hear the kind of joy that he's got there? Can you hear the love there? The, the interesting thing is, in the Bible, these are the first words spoken by a human. And they are a song. They are a love song, right? I tell single guys, they say, look, you know, if you want to follow Adam, if you love a girl, go and sing her a song. She may not ever talk to you again, but at least she knows where you stand. This is exactly what Adam does. And he sees her. This is his standard of beauty. His wife is his standard of beauty. 
The flesh and bone statement is a statement of covenant loyalty. They are so close as a family. She is now part of him. And so what happens? Verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. The one flesh speaks of human sexuality, uh, of having sex. And what, what the writer of Genesis says is this is the context for, mari- for, for sexuality. Marriage is the context of this. If you flip over to Genesis 4 verse 1 and the rest of a, a bunch of passages, the Bible's got an interesting euphemism for sex. In older translations, it is Adam knew his wife. In in the NIV, it says made love to his wife. But in in the original, it is know, to know. And if you trace that word throughout the Old Testament, what you'll find is it it is a a knowledge which shows intimacy. It's a great knowledge. It's a knowledge that God says of uh, he knows Israel in every way. And this knowledge here is, as I said, a euphemism for sex. It means that sex is found, the right sex is found in a context where we know the other person intimately. It it, it is saying that we're giving ourselves to to our spouse as kind of consummation of knowing them. We are, we are totally vulnerable to them. They know us and we know them and we are totally vulnerable. It, it, it is saying that we're giving, it, it's a metaphor for us giving ourselves to our spouse legally, economically, socially, emotionally, spiritually. Sex is God's way for two people to say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. And so there is a sense in which, not a sense in which, God's purpose for sexuality is only seen in marriage. And, and there's, there's, there's a kind of thing if we're having sex outside of marriage. We're trying to isolate one union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union, unions which were intended to go along with sex. And, and yes, sex may be fun outside of marriage. I'm not saying it wouldn't be. Uh, and sex may be, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why you may have, have sex and enjoy it. What the Bible says, it's, it's not the real thing. It may, you may be doing the same thing, but it's, it's actually not the real thing. See, it's a bit like this. I'm sorry to use this illustration, but this is the best thing I can come up with. Um, the other day I had a day off and I went into a guitar store. Um, yes, I'll link sex with guitars somehow. And anyway, I went into this and there's the, the next guitar that I'm going to buy uh, one day when I've saved up thousands of dollars, I don't know, when I'm 90 or something, is a Gibson J200 acoustic guitar. I walk into this guitar store and they've got a bunch of acoustic guitars on the wall and the light is kind of weird. So I, you can see that, that there's a guitar that is shaped like, like the guitar I wanted. A Gibson J200. So I go up to the person, I say, can I, can I play that Gibson J200? And he goes, 
which one? And I, and I showed him. He goes, oh, that's not a Gibson J200. It's a, a J200 by a different brand. And he goes, but they're just as good. And I was like, oh, just as good. I've heard this before. And he goes, you should play it because it's just as good. You'll love it. I, I, I pick the guitar up. I strum one G chord. I hand it back. I said, there's nothing like it. It, it, it. It's totally different. There's no depth to the sound. There's different woods. and Everything's different about this. Yes, it's shaped like the same. It kind of looks the same, but it's totally different. It is totally and utterly different. And then I said to him, have you ever played a real J200? And he said, no. I said, well, how can you say it's exactly the same? See, when... When you have sex outside of marriage, what God is saying is it may look the same. It may even feel the same physically, but it's absolutely not the same. It is not the same. It doesn't have the depth of relationship. It doesn't have the trust. It doesn't have the, the tears and, and forgiveness and grace and arguments and resolutions and all the things that come in marriage. And therefore, it's not going to mean anything near what married sex looks like. They're, they're very different. They are very, very different. And so, what we've got to continue to realise is that God has purposed our sexuality for a certain thing. And outside of that, if we step outside those bounds, it's, it's like tra- trading the real important thing, the real thing, for just a terrible Taiwanese knockoff. It, it's not the real thing. There is a God's purpose for our sexuality. And now there's... A billion questions. What about singleness? What about, what about if I have same-sex attraction? We're actually dealing with that in, in a few weeks. But I want to go to our next point. God's purpose for our bodies. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 6 for me. 1 Corinthians 6. I wonder if you, you uh, heard it as Michelle was reading how many times... Paul talks about bodies, body this and body that and body this. Why is that? It's because Descartes was from the 1700s, but he was building his philosophy on our our mind-body dualism on Greco-Roman philosophy. And Corinth is in the middle of the Greco-Roman world. In fact, uh, Corinth was a, a pretty average Roman city. What we know about the, about, about the Roman world from, from archaeology is it was pretty sex-crazy. And that culture had infected Corinth. In fact, in chapter 6, you've got a dude who's sleeping with his stepmother. And everyone at the church is going, yay, this is amazing. It is showing our freedom in Christ. And Paul is writing to these guys. And, and, and what he's doing is he's answering some of their questions or objections. And that's why in our Bibles there's quotation marks. Let, let's have a look at what he says. Have a look at verse 13. 
you say food for the body, sorry, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. There's two arguments there that they've got. They're just saying, well, 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 like my body gets hungry. It's a natural thing to eat. So I eat. My body feels like having sex, so we just have sex. And not, and not only that, that's one argument, but the second argument, God's going to destroy them both. So really, who cares? But here's how Paul answers. The body, however, is not meant for sexuality. Sorry, sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He's saying, actually, there's a purpose for your body. It's not for sexual immorality. No, your body is there to glorify God. And in verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. He's saying, God's not going to destroy your body. Jesus was raised physically. And so when he comes back and you are raised, you're not going to be raised to being Casper the ghost in heaven. You're going to be raised physically. So what you do with your body matters. And so what shouldn't you do? Well, he goes on and says, don't don't unite yourself with a prostitute, which I dare say a bunch of the people at that church were doing. What should you do, however, if you want to honour God with your body? Because your body was created for God? Well, verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Did, Did you see he is not saying what happens in your soul or spiritual is different from what happens in your body? He is saying they are connected so that you can sin against your own body. You can sin. That's a soul or spiritual world. But but actually, it's going to affect your body also. And the word flee there, the word flee in, in the original Greek word sounds a lot like, this is how I remember it, sounds a lot like the Spanish word for fire, fuego. And think about the fire. Gene, a couple of weeks ago, talked about the Canberra fires and how there was like a a tornado with fire. Imagine having that. What are you going to do there? Are you going to go, oh, that's really interesting. Never seen that before. No, you're going to run for your life. And what Paul is saying is, hey, don't just just be on social media late at night and just scrolling through photos that are a bit, you can justify, kind of. No, he's saying, run for your life. He's saying, don't, have a, don't be in a flirtatious relationship with, with your colleague, but think, oh, it's not going to go more, more than that. No, run for your life. He's saying, if you want to honour God with your body, you will run for your life from sexual immorality. But why should you honour God with your body? Have a look, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. He is saying that when Jesus died, he not only died for your soul, he died for your body also. He died to save all of you. And your body is not your own. It's actually God's. Because he's given, he has created you. He has made you. And therefore, what, what, what are you meant to do? You're meant to honour God with your body because of what Jesus has, has done. Notice how his argument here is very important. He is not saying, if you want to be an awesome Christian, 
you know, you should, you should not engage in anything that's sexually immoral. If you want God to love you, you should, you, should, you should do this. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, guess what? You have been bought at a price. All your sin has been forgiven. God has shown his great love for you. Because of that love, because of what Jesus has done, therefore live in this way. Can you see the logic? I think a lot of the problems we have with people walking away from church, uh, what I've noticed, especially young people, is because of sexuality. Because they, they've done something and they feel like God does not love them anymore. Can I just say, if you are in sin now, a sexual sin, can I say, if you trust in the Lord Jesus, no matter what you are doing, you are loved, you are forgiven, your identity is firm in Jesus. There's no question of that from God's mind or, or from the Bible. Yes, you should flee from sexual immorality because God has bought you at a price. But you were, you were bought past tense. It is done. And now live differently. Don't believe the satanic lie that God doesn't love you because of what you're doing now. That God can't forgive you or God won't forgive you. That's just not true. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus would say. Jesus, Jesus loves people like you. He is not disappointed in you. He does not regret saving you. But he loves the fact that he came to earth for you, to die for you. So maybe you are in, caught up in sexual sin. Can you come talk to me? I know what it is like to be addicted to pornography. It's something I've got to keep watch on. It's something that I've got friends in my life that I've got to talk to about. I've got, you know, you know I just go, oh, man, I was really, really struggling. Uh, you know, I thought about, man, can you just pray for me, right? I've got to do that. And I know the guilt that comes with it. But can I also say I know the freedom that comes with it when you talk about it. And you talk about it with a brother or sister in Christ that reminds you of the gospel every day. That's what you need. That's what you need. But here's the other thing. If your bodies are there to glorify Jesus, to honour God, have you ever thought what makes a body beautiful? Our world is obsessed with a beautiful body, right? And if you're a guy, what you've got to do is you've got to have six-pack abs, you've got to have huge muscles, you've got to have all this, right? If you're a girl, you've got to have a certain bus, you've got maybe, you know, you've got to look like Kim Kardashian or whatever it is, right? And we spend money, we go to the gym, we do all this thing because we want a beautiful body. Guess what? God says that's a flat-out lie. God says a beautiful body is one that is used to honour the Lord Jesus. And therefore, that changes what we do, how we think with our, about our working out and our food, doesn't it? We don't work out and eat certain foods so we can look like this sexy 21-year-old person who's posing on some photo. No, we work out and we eat the right food so that we can have the energy to honour God with our bodies. Can you see how liberating this is? How changing this is? 
See, God's not only got a purpose for you as a person. God's got a, God's got a, a purpose for your sexuality. God's got a purpose for your bodies. And because of what Jesus has done, he's calling all of us to honour him with our bodies. But he's also saying, honour me because I died for you. When I was a teenager, we went, um, I'll just finish this, we went to, we went up to a place, Toowoomba, I think it was, and there were, we were told that it was going to be like a bunch of Christian bands and all this kind of stuff and you can get in, in a mosh pit. And I said to my mum, I'm going to go up to Toowoomba, there's going to be bands, there's going to be a mosh pit. And my mum was like, shouldn't you wash before you go? And yeah, there's a whole conversation around that. Anyway, and um, there was a couple of bands and then they got this speaker up from, from a, a Christian group called True Love Waits. And he started talking about sexuality, and, and, and it wasn't like, hey, here's what the Bible says about sexuality. It was all these stats designed to scare us away from having sex. If you have sex, guess what? You'll probably get a disease, you'll probably do this, or you probably, you know, you, you, know, you could get pregnant, all this kind of stuff. All these, ter- all these things that, he, that, it, that it made sound like it's really terrible. But what he did at the start, and, and this is a world-famous talk that he's done, right? At the start, he had a rose. And he he talked about how beautiful this rose is and he smelt the rose and he goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to," he gave it to someone in the front row, I want you to have a look at this rose, feel it, touch it, and then I want you to pass it along, right? And uh, he he did that and there's like a thousand teenagers in this room. So they're getting passed along, all this kind of stuff. And then he gave this 40-minute talk, as I said, basically scare campaign at the end. And then he did this really just dumb thing that, that, that speakers do sometimes where they go, oh, I totally forgot about that rose. Well, where is it? And it was up the back. And, you know, because, you know, teenagers have been messing with it, it was totally jacked up. It got brought, brought up the front. It was broken. There was no leaves on it. And he goes, see this rose at the start? At the start, it was a beautiful rose. And then what happened? I gave it to you and everyone touched it. Everyone had its way with it. And now it's broken. Who wants this rose? And no one wanted it, of course, especially with his rhetoric, what he was saying. And he said, see, this is what happens. If you have sex outside of marriage, you're going to be like this rose and no one is going to want you. And he threw the rose down and walked off. And I can remember even back then thinking, that's just wrong. Because the whole point of the gospel is Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants the one who is broken. Jesus wants the one who has made a mess of their lives. Jesus is the one who came for people who are broken like that rose. And therefore, what we do is we go, we are so thankful for what Jesus has done. And therefore, I'm going to honour God with my body. See, that is the logic of the gospel. That is the logic of the cross. That is the logic of a gospel-shaped sexuality. If you have messed up, Jesus loves you, he died for you, and he still wants you. And I'd love a conversation with your Kate or Tim or somebody. But let's pray. Father God, I thank you that we have a purpose. 
We are, uh, our bodies are built with a purpose, made with a purpose. Our, our lives are made with a purpose. Our, our, our sexuality is made with a purpose. And, and Lord, I thank you that, that our standing with you is not based on, on how great we are, how pure we are, or whatever. Our standing with you is based on what Jesus has done. And Lord, because of what Jesus has done, help us to honour you with our bodies. Lord, I pray for, for those men and women here, and I know there, there, there's some here who are caught in sexual sin and they're so ashamed of it. Lord, may, may they be reminded of your great love, your, your death, uh, Jesus' death for them on the cross, that Jesus loves to, to put together broken lives and forgive broken people. May they not only find the forgiveness of the cross, but may they find the conversation that they need today or maybe this week. Thank you that we are a church that loves people who need Jesus because we all do. I thank you for the way you have created us with purpose. Amen.